Uh, I'm Julian McRae, I'm a senior fellow here, and I am delighted to be able to uh, chair this event on expenditure control in the UK. Uh, I can spot a number of fellow fiscal nerds sitting in the audience. Uh, this should be a very, very exciting event. Um, <laughs> we're, this is part of a major uh, research project that's been funded by Nuffield and by the ESRC. Uh, which is being led between the Blavatnik School of Government and Christopher Hood, sneaking in the corner there, um, and the IFS, where Paul Johnson is overseeing the work. Um, so this is the first public uh, output from this uh, research, and it's really setting the baseline, the facts and figures, uh, what's actually happened uh, to expenditure control uh, in the UK. Um, we're going to start uh, with Ben, who's going to introduce the... Uh, actual facts uh, you will have seen online. Some of you may already have digested the full report, uh, which gives us is as classic in IFS publications lots and lots of numbers, figures, facts uh, about what's gone on. Um, we're then joined by two excellent discussants who will join me on stage. I'll introduce them properly uh, when they're here. Uh, but Nick McPherson and Anita Charlesworth, uh, who many of you will know. Uh, and finally, Paul Johnson will also uh, join us uh, to give, take some initial reactions uh, from those, uh, those responses. Um, so, um, with no further ado, I will hand over to Ben, uh, if you want to take us through some of the facts and figures. Thank you, Julian, and thank you to the Institute for Government for hosting us today. And I'd also like to reiterate our thanks to the Newfield Foundation and the ESRC for making all of this possible. I'm going to give you something of a brief overview, which hopefully can feed into the panel discussion to follow. But throughout all of this work, the question we're really trying to bear in mind and really get at is how effectively spending has been controlled through 1993 to 2015. It's a really important question. The ability of governments to effectively control the spending is essential if they're to meet the desired policy outcomes, meet any wider fiscal objectives, and to achieve things like value for money for the taxpayer. It's also a big question, covering a period of more than 20 years. It's a period of including single-party government of both Labour and Conservatives. We've got times of fiscal expansion, fiscal contraction. We've got times of relative macroeconomic stability. And we've got times of relative turbulence as well. And importantly for us, this is a period where there's numerous changes to the framework for trying to plan and control public spending. So across this whole period, lots of different contexts, different rules, different measurements, very different environments, it's hard to draw very extremely firm conclusions, and we have to be somewhat selective in our analysis. So we focus on one particular measure of control. We focus on the predictability of spending, in a sense of whether spending turns out as planned. We compare plans and outturns and examine the match between them to get a sense of how effectively spending was controlled. Of course, this isn't the only measure of control of spending, and there are other metrics that we care about. And we acknowledge from the outset that a deviation from plan isn't necessarily indicative of a lack of control. And there are certainly times when we'd want a government to deviate from its plans. So to take an extreme example, in the, out in the outbreak of a war or an epidemic, we wouldn't want any government to be strictly bound by its previous plans. We want that flexibility. So throughout all this, it's important to bear in mind there's a trade-off to be made between the control of spending on the one hand and the flexibility to respond to events on the other. So all of our quantitative analysis is open to interpretation. And this is just the first part of a wider project, as, as Julie mentioned, which eventually will use more qualitative evidence to try and build a fuller picture and help us interpret some of the relationships and trends that we document here. And I'm also hopeful that the panel today can offer their own personal insights and interpretations of some of the findings that, that we show you. 
Our report covers in some depth how and how well spending has been controlled, but I'm going to focus just on a few key findings that we can draw out from our report. First of those is that plans don't tend to be breached in the sense that final spending limits are very rarely exceeded, but plans do frequently get changed, and that's the primary, me primary mechanism through which spending differs from plan. The introduction of firm and fixed multi-year budgets at spending reviews looks on the face of it to have improved the predictability of spending, but those plans have never been strictly stuck to, and particularly since 2008, they've been changed quite a lot. There are numerous features of the system that look like they're designed to constrain Treasury or government behaviour, but those constraints don't seem to be binding. And if we see them to be successful now, it's perhaps because those rules happen to align with Treasury's desires at the time, and when it became attractive to deviate from those rules, they've proved willing and able to do so. Capital spending's been a headache for multiple governments, and at least by our definition, it isn't an area that's been effectively controlled, and investment plans have repeatedly been missed. And finally, the relative prioritization of different areas within the total has been remarkably stable over time across different environments and across different governments. So first of all, when spending differs from plan, it tends to be because those plans have been changed. And those plans tend to be changed in the direction of the government's overarching fiscal objectives. So at times when the government is pursuing a fiscal tightening and making public spending cuts, we often see those plans revised downwards and the government ends up cutting even more than initially planned. When the government is boosting public spending, we often see those plans topped up and the eventual public spending increase is greater than that originally set out. But within that, we see something of an asymmetry. And there are clearly strong incentives for departments to avoid overspending. The consequences, whether it's being hauled in front of the Public Accounts Committee, or whether it's some sort of reputational loss, are clearly severe enough that they are reluctant to exceed the final limits set by the Treasury. And there are very few examples of spending exceeding those final plans. And the sizable underspends we've seen in recent years, in the face of deep budget cuts, a testament to that fact. To try and show some of this more quantitatively, because after all that's the, that's the point of our contribution to this work, I'm going to show you some forecast errors for total spending, so the overall level of public spending. They're expressed as a share of GDP, and a positive number here indicates an overspend relative to plan, and a negative number an underspend. And we can think about this at different time horizons. So if we first think about over the full period between 1993 and 2015, the forecast error for the in-year estimates of spending. So that, that green bar here shows that on average spending turned out slightly lower than those in-year estimates. And if we can do that for the first year of plans, so the one-year-out error as well, also negative, and for the second year, and third year of plans as well. So if we take the period as a whole and we aggregate, on average, spending turns out a little bit lower, modest underspend relative to plan. But that hides a great deal of variation between sub-periods. So if we think about the 1990s, which is a period when the government was trying to reduce public spending as a share of national income, and it was making uh, spending cuts, we see much larger negative forecast errors. So we see much larger underspends relative to plan, as those plans are repeatedly revised downwards. And similarly, if something slightly less clearly, in the 2010s, we see something similar, where as the government was making spending cuts, it made additional cuts on top of those, and as a result, we see considerable underspends. In contrast, during the 2000s, while the first year of plans were almost perfectly stuck to, we see the second and third year of plans repeatedly coming in. We see overspends, we see positive forecast errors. So if you aggregate across the whole period, it looks like spending control being pretty good, but that hides quite a lot of variation. And it clearly looks to depend on the government's wider fiscal objectives and the climate of the time. And the fact that those plans can be changed relates to a second point, relating to the reality of multi-year budgeting. So multi-year spending plans have been a feature of the system since the 1960s and the public expenditure surveys. But prior to 1998, 
the, beyond the first year of plans, the second and third year didn't really mean anything. They weren't binding. They were frequently revised and changed and chopped and moved around uh, subsequent budgets. So that took away from the certainty for departments. They didn't really know what they were going to be getting a few years down the line. So one of the reforms in 1998 was to introduce so-called firm and fixed budgets, where they wouldn't be tinkered with so often, set at each spending review for the following three years to provide departments with greater certainty. The introduction of that regime does look to be correlated with improvement in the predictability of spending. Plans were adhered to for much of the 2000s with some top-ups here and there and with larger top-ups in overlapping spending review periods. But since 2008, they can't reasonably be described as having been firm and fixed. We've seen additional spending added to plans and brought forward during the financial crisis. Then we've seen in-year cuts when the coalition government took power and we've seen trimming of plans repeatedly outside of spending reviews since then. So multi-year budgets aren't always stuck to. Similarly to the previous chart, I'm going to now show you some forecast errors, again expressed as a percentage of GDP. But now I'm thinking about a particular measure of spending. So governments try and control not all spending. They acknowledge that some things lie outside of their power, so things like debt interest spend, spending on debt interest payments and some aspects of cyclical social security. So in the 1990s, the government targeted a measure called the new control total, and that was replaced by departmental expenditure limits in 1998. What we've done here is adjusted the control total to make it broadly comparable across periods. So basically, you can think about this as representing about half of all government spending. And if you look at the 1990s, we see large negative forecast errors, particularly at two- and three-year time horizons as plans are revised downwards. Then, with the advent of the spending reviews and these firm and fixed Dell plans, we see, with a few exceptions, the bars are much smaller. Spending has become much more predictable. It's bunched around zero, almost. See, those two large green bars at spending review 1998 and spending review 2000 due to the overlapping nature of spending reviews. So the third year of SR 1998 became the first year of SR 2000, and the third year of SR 2000 became the first year of spending review 2002. And those new plans were then stuck to, that shows up as an underspend here. So if we think, take that into account, the first four spending reviews, plans were broadly stuck to. Then we see in the midst of the financial crisis, government adding additional spending, bringing spending forward from future years, and that's the two-year out overspend it's going to be 2007. If you think about since 2010, we haven't seen a return to the negative underspends of the 1990s. But we have seen a greater tendency for negative forecast errors and spending turning out far more less than planned as those plans have been repeatedly trimmed. The fact that the government can make those changes outside of spending reviews, which aren't supposed to be in theory possible, reflects the fact that there are features of the framework that look intended to constrain Treasury behaviour but they're only as robust as the political will behind them. So tinkering with plans outside of spending reviews is one example of that. There are others. So another is transfers from supposedly ring-fenced capital budgets into resource budgets. So in 2015-16, for example, the Department for Health shifted more than a billion from its capital budget into its resource budget to fund day-to-day -day spending, something that's not supposed to be possible under the system, but which the Treasury sanctioned. We've seen, at times, Treasury's willingness to be flexible to meet its fiscal rules, whether that's redating the economic cycle, or whether that's uh, favoring particular aspects of spending, perhaps due to their accounting treatment. Treasury's not proved to be strictly bound by its commitments and rules. And finally, the NDF flexibility system, which was a framework to allow departments to carry forward unspent provisions into future financial years. So if they underspent, they could build up this entitlement that they could then draw down to use later on. What the data suggests happens is that the Treasury used those underspends, in effect, to increase spending elsewhere, but simultaneously allowed departments to build up considerable amounts of these EYF stock. So we can show how this built up over time. 
split by capital and resource spending. And we can see by 2006, 2007, it reached almost 23 billion in cash terms, which was more than 7% of total departmental budgets for the year. That declined a little bit, but then by 2009, 2010, we still had almost 20 billion worth of departments' entitlements built up through the NDF flexibility scheme, at which point the Treasury abolished the scheme, including all departments' built-up entitlements at that time, and replaced it with something else entirely. That's discussed a bit more in the report. We might think that perhaps was a good move to the Treasury, but it still shows that they were willing to break their previous commitments to departments when it became attractive to do so. Capital spending has been a challenge for all governments. By our definition of spending, they've repeatedly struggled to control it. We see public sector net investment almost always undershooting plans. That's been the case whether capital spending has been cut, whether it's been increased over time. And we might think this is particularly relevant now. So after quite deep cuts to capital spending under Mr. Osborne's chancellorship, we've seen Mr. Hammond now looking to boost capital spending to relatively high levels by historical standards. Perhaps a lesson from history is that we ought not to be too surprised if that capital spending doesn't, isn't fully materialised and some of it fails to be achieved. This is perhaps most clearly shown, we think, about the period up to 2010. So we can see in the 1990s, the grey plans here showed successive plans for net investment spending. And we can see that it was planned to fall in nominal terms. The green line shows that it, in fact, fell even faster than planned. And we see over the course of the 2000s, the grey line showed spending was planned to increase. And the red line shows it did, in fact, increase, but consistently at a slower rate than planned and still consistently undershooting until the financial crisis when spending was brought forward, spending was added, and also some of the measurement gets confused by financial sector interventions. It's quite hard with this scale to see just how much the government was shooting by, but during the 1990s, spending came in, on average, about a third less than was planned the year before. Over the course of the 2000s, it was more like 13% less, so it's been reduced, but perhaps still a concern for governments going forward. Within the total, governments have tended to prioritise the same departments. So we're thinking here about the ranking of planned growth in different parts of the government at each spending review. So the black line shows the ranking of total DEL. So effectively, how is the average department doing? If you're above the black line, you're doing better than average. If you're below the black line, you're doing worse than average. So a few things jump out. First of all, health and international development consistently do better than average. That's the case also for most of the time for education and for transport. In contrast, local government and defence always seem to do worse. And that's been true for the Home Office in recent years as well. And it's quite interesting that that's the case across times of quite rapid fiscal expansion in the late 1990s and early 2000s, and then comparatively tight spending settlements at spending through 2007 and since 2010 in the age of austerity. And another thing that's worth adding to this is that no chancellor has proved willing to resist or able to resist the temptation to top up NHS budgets outside of the cycle. That was true for Ken Clark in the 1990s, it was true for Gordon Brown in the 2000s, it was true for George Osborne in the 2010s, and if recent months are anything to go by, nothing much has changed in that regard. Perhaps what we can take from this is that we shouldn't be too shocked if the $20 billion announced by Theresa May for the NHS turns out to be something of a lower bound and some future Chancellor ends up topping it up even further. That ought not to be a surprise to us. So to summarise, plans are very rarely breached, but they are changed, and they're frequently changed in the direction of the government's wider objectives. The introduction of firm and fixed multi-year budgets looks to have improved predictability, but they haven't always been stuck to, particularly since 2008. Features of the framework designed to constrain Treasury behaviour are only as robust as the political will behind them, and the Treasury has proved willing and able to break them when wanted. Successive governments have struggled to control capital spending. Investment plans are very rarely met, consistently undershoot investment plans. And spending priorities have been remarkably stable over time and across governments in different fiscal contexts. 
Thank you very much for listening, and I look forward to the panel discussion. Great. Excellent. Thanks, Ben, for that. I'm just uh, joined by our, by our illustrious panel. Um, we're going to um, start with uh, Lord Macpherson, um, almost the embodiment of Her Majesty's Treasury, I would say, um, and whose um, knowledge and indeed dry wit is now open to anyone on the internet on his Twitter account. And if you don't follow Nick, I would suggest you do. With that introduction, I'll hand over to Nick and to your thoughts on the, the presentation. Julian, you're very, you're very, very kind. Um, well, look, the first thing is, I think um, this is a really important piece of work. Um, to 99.9% .9 of the population, uh, the issue of the control of public spending um, is not of much interest. But um, someone has to be interested in this subject. <laughs> and actually, I'm very encouraged by the size of the audience today. I think the first point I'd make is um, that this paper has demonstrated that um, certainly over the last um, uh, two and a half decades, the, tre the Treasury has been pretty good at controlling spending. doesn't mean it can't get better, but it's been pretty good. And it's worth just um, casting our minds back to the period before the study. Actually, going back to the 1970s, controlling public spending was much more difficult. Um, I mean, that was partly because of the sort of Treasury's post-war Keynesian approach to volume planning, which meant that uh, public expenditure in those days was planned in volume terms and then um, uprated by um, special funny indices. But it's also because we had a huge nationalised industry sector in those days, which was difficult to control. And... In those days, local authorities had far more freedom in terms of how much they could tax and how much they could spend. And right through the early 80s, uh, when you had a government which was really committed to public expenditure control, there was genuine frustration um, amongst uh, the Thatcher cabinet that, that, that it was so difficult to control public spending. That really changed, I think, because of a privatisation but B, and more importantly, um, a complete rigorous control over local authority spending, which pretty much continues to this day. I won't bore you with how that was achieved, but it just means that local authorities have far less freedom, really, to do anything. Um, I think they're still constrained on um, how much they can put taxes up. And... Again, the Treasury, I think, felt threatened by the potential devolution settlements for Scotland and Wales. Um, but um, despite worries about what would happen when Scotland could tax, um, tax uh, on its own account, um, actually the regime is pretty rigorous and it is difficult for Scotland really to go in, in very different directions. So that's the sort of longer-term context I'd just very briefly like to um, pick up on, on, on some of the points. I mean, actually, there are, only, there are only two things in this excellent paper which I, I, I tend to disagree on. Um, one, actually, was the speaker saying that the rules are all about constraining the Treasury's behaviour. Actually, look, the reason why you have a control regime is nothing to do with the Treasury. Um, it's about constraining departments, and particularly the Prime Minister's 
behaviour. Um, the control regime is always the biggest fiction um, in existence. When it all gets too difficult, the Treasury always changes it. Um, and actually what matters is not the control total, it's total public spending. But um, it's amazing how you can get away with this idea that once you've set these hard, rigorous totals, um, that they somehow can't, can't be changed. Um, the, the, other, but the other issue I'd like to take issue with is, um, is MDF flexibility. Um, there are certain people from the Treasury who, were, who are here who were instrumental in abolishing it. I thought, and I still think, that was a big mistake. A, because, as the Speaker very sensibly pointed out, there are issues of trust here. If the Treasury reneges on something, it can't expect um, departments to trust it in return. And the other thing was, although everybody always claimed that there was this huge sort of 20 billion waiting to be spent, um, you know, there's actually no sign that departments ever wanted to spend their EYF uh, to any large extent, rather like local authorities with their reserves. This is all for a rainy day. And the more constraining the environment, the more you actually think, God, I better hang on to this EYF stock. So I would, um, I would bring it back, but I see Dr. Richardson, uh, the hard man of the General Expenditure <laughs> Policy Division, uh, is present, and he may want to argue with me. Um, I'm sure I've gone over my allotted time, but just a few very quick points. I still think that separating capital and current, I mean, you make the point that it's not um, had perhaps as much impact um, as you would have um, liked, but that was a really important change. I was in the Treasury in the early 90s. Whenever you had to cut spending, you just went straight to the roads programme. Um, other thing, endless debate about whether social security should be, how do you control social security? It's demand-led. Um, most of these controls totals actually took it out. I think that's probably a mistake, um, you need social security in the system. The, the theory of annually managed expenditure was that you'd review it every year. Uh, until recently, there's very little sign of that. Um, the really important thing is um, about why they were underspent in the 90s was inflation was coming down, simple as that. And since inflation has been stable, controlling public spending is a lot easier. And the really big change was being able to go beyond having annual spending reviews, which was largely a reflection of um, an inflationary environment. Being able to, the longer the gap between spending reviews, um, the better in terms of control. A really arcane issue which you didn't mention is the old issue of the Treasury's contingency reserve. There are always two views. The, the sort of people who wanted to be able to demonstrate that they were controlling public spending always wanted a large reserve. And then there's another tendency, which I will name the Culpin tendency, named after an eminent uh, second permanent secretary who was responsible for public spending at the Treasury, which was, look, if you have a big reserve, it'll only get spent. So have a smaller one as possible and don't get too worried if the control total um, increases. I should have mentioned, because I see Sir Andrew Lickerman, uh, the founder of um, resource accounting. The other thing which you didn't touch on is that the Treasury did for a brief period, try and um, control resource spending rather than near cash spending. Um, what happened was the, the, the Ministry of Defence saw this as a potential source of cash, and so they started changing all its depreciation calculations and recycling that money into cash spending. And the Treasury has never gone back to full-blooded resource spending, and I'd be interested to hear 
people thinking on that. And final, final point, controlling public spending is inherently messy. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, it's a sort of grubby business. Uh, you do lots of side deals. Spending reviews, the final totals are never pure. You've always said, well, we'll give Richard Douglas of the... We'll guarantee you access to the reserve of half a billion, two billion, whatever. So um, I'm not surprised that um, outcomes are uh, generally different from ex-ante uh, positions. And um, the one thing, again, I agree with you very much is if we could make this all more transparent, that would be a very good thing. But if you're in the Treasury, sometimes um, a bit of obscurity um, helps you get through the day. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you, Nick. Uh, that's wonderful. Loads of different points in there. Though I did spend most of the talk wondering about from the point of view of the research, whether we'd have a great natural experiment at the end period when we reintroduced a nationalised industries and a sort of really devolved and empowered local government. But anyway, we shall see where our politics ends up. Um, our next discussion, Anita Charlesworth, who also worked at the Treasury on public expenditure mm -hmm. and control, but I think also has worked outside DCMS and in the Department of Health, and of course now at the Health Foundation. Um, and I, I trust you were heartened by the news that you'll be getting even more money for health coming forward. So yes, and I, I did the Wonders Review before that, so I, and I was there obviously during the 2000s, so I sort of view myself as a one-woman spending pressure, I think, <laughs> <laughs> fundamentally. And, and um, the, the, the thing that I think is quite interesting, especially, I mean, coming at this as I do, having looked at health uh, for quite a lot, which is now, what, a third of Dell, um, is to think about the difference between short-term spending control and long-term spending control. And I, I started out, actually, in the early 1990s in Department of, of Health trying to control the drugs bill. And it is essentially, basically, like trying to squeeze the balloon. You know, so, so you have moments of success when you try and push on one bit of it, but very frustratingly, it then pops out elsewhere. And to some extent, if you look... If, you, if one was being pessimistic from a control point of view or optimistic from a success of people like Richard Douglas' point of view, um, and you look at health, you might argue that over 20 or 30 years, the Treasury approach to health, the way that spending reviews have operated is largely to try to squeeze that uh, balloon and you have a period where you feel like you've held down spending and it doesn't hold, it's not sustainable and you don't tend to overspend massively um, but obviously what you do is you reopen uh, the settlement either officially or by the back door. Um, and I think that is because, actually, we over-focus on controlling money in the short term and we don't focus enough, in terms of Treasury instruments, on the real resource drivers of finance. Um, and I think, in particular, the Treasury has... Um, a very weak locus historically over efficiency of public services. And in something like the health system, the different trajectory of effic uh, efficiency makes relatively little difference over a two- to three-year period. But if you, you look over 20 years, that makes an in enormous difference. How to get real leverage over e efficiency, both in the moment of setting budgets, but then in an accountability framework afterwards, I think is something that people have struggled with and it's hard. And if you think some of those decisions on capital to resource transfers will have undermined, actually, 
in the medium term drive for efficiency and, and, and that's probably true not just in healthcare but we're an undercapitalised probably uh, public sector. We've got low investment in IT compared to other areas etc which have been <coughs> uh, systemic weaknesses. With very weak control over inputs. So over the 20 years you were talking about, as uh, Paul and I in project we, we did on NHS funding found, you know, number of hospital doctors went up 70%. You know, that create and there's relatively weak control. Well, it's, it's not necessarily you should control it, but there's very weak debate about that. Once you've put that in train, it has a consequence which creates a, a juggernaut. Equally, the specification of outcomes. You know, so we legislated 18 weeks targets into legislation. Again, that creates a momentum. And Treasury focus and leverage and collective decision-making around those points is comparatively weak. And, and I think that, you, therefore, you see the consequences of that. So I think if I was trying to shift, and I, I'd say alongside actually weak levers of control and locus of interest on those issues. The other thing which is a problem with, to some extent, the short-term, still comparatively short-term spending review, is that it's slightly in everybody's interest across both sides to collude a little informally in plans that don't quite add up. Yeah? Um, so, so actually, you know, to get a deal, yeah, um, that will hold... The fact that actually you stored up problems for the next spending review or the one after that, there's kind of no one really with a powerful enough voice in the system for the subsequent spending reviews. And in the work that Martin Wheatley is doing, I've argued that you know there's no independent assessment of baseline pressures going into spending reviews. So what actually does carrying on with the current system mean? There. You could, I've played different games in different spending reviews about whether it was better tactically to overestimate or underestimate. On both sides of the fence, you can be in different camps at different spending reviews or different departments in different camps. Um, and then, of course, once you do a deal, it's in everyone's interest to load that with actually policy commitments that aren't sustained within that envelope and which then build subsequent pressure. So actually how you get more rigour um, into, I mean, I would like a spending review costed for its impact for five to ten years, independently by the OBR at the end of the uh, process. Um, I think it would make the process of spending review harder, but I think it would be a positive thing. The other thing which I think it's worth thinking about is just how undermining potentially to control in the medium term reopening is. So if you sit in the NHS, in one sense, you have a very strong control regime but actually what you all know is is a fiction. You know, so once you've bust a Dell, the moment of uh, or you've bust a budget if you're in an NHS organization, that, that moment is a huge moment for a finance director, for an organization. But when lots of you have done that, you, you lose uh, it, it, any real um, power uh, from, from, from that process. And one of the things that really, I think, makes the job of you know, Richard Douglas's successors, finance directors in organisations, to focus on things like efficiency is that actually the belief that the, to- the control total is the control total has been substantially weakened. Um, and it does make that quite uh, difficult. So I think although... Breaching is worse than reopening. Reopening is a serious issue in the medium term. It creates uh, a moral hazard. And then the final thing I I just want to say is about 
at the importance of the volatility and the lag um, in being able to change direction. So I, I was in, in, the, in government, obviously, when the taps turned on in the 2000s, and I went to a hilarious meeting with Gordon Brown after whichever spending review had put the money into Shorestar, where I think three months afterwards he asked if he could go and visit a centre to explain it, it took a little bit longer than that. Uh, you know, actually, no one works in it yet, even. I think we just recruited the head of the programme. It takes quite a long time to spend money, especially when you've been used to not spending money. Equally, obviously, then, in the late 2000s, that change of gear again. And, and actually, this is probably isn't a Treasury issue, but it probably is a Cabinet Office issue. How you change direction and are ready to change direction, the absence of things like long-term capital plans, deep good understanding of those things, all, all of it makes it very hard uh, uh, to, 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 to change di direction. Um, and clearly, we do change direction, and we probably will again. So, um, so that process, I think, needs to be thought about, because otherwise, you know, we've got numerous examples of poor VFM decisions taken in those time when money flowed in, poor VFM. But also then, we, when we cut in the NHS, we cut training places. Yeah, for staff because it's an easy thing to cut that's not very visible and boy has it come back to bite us in terms of then <coughs> as, uh, as staffing costs as, as well. Excellent. Thank you, Anita. Loads and loads of uh, insights in there. And I particularly, I mean, the long term versus the short term, I think we're doing some work on accountability as well mm. as the work you mentioned, which is a project we're doing on the future of the Treasury. Um, and it really has struck me how much there seems to be almost a public policy timing consistency issue knocking about with very little anchoring of the mm. debates inside this. And rather knowing decisions by people who can explain to you why the sums add up now, but why they possibly won't in the future. I think it's a, it's a fascinating psychology that knocks about inside that, which maybe we'll come on to in the discussion. Um, Paul, Paul Johnson, um, Director of the Institute of Fiscal Studies, one of the co-authors on the report, but also I think, Paul, uh, you have worked in previous times inside the Treasury at the Department for Education, on the other side of the barriers, as it were. Um, your, your reflections, uh, any responses um, to Nick and Anita's points, uh, and anything you'd like to add uh, before we throw it open to the floor? Uh, thanks, Julian. Um, uh, only briefly, since um, Ben, as it were, has had a, a go on behalf of the IFS um, already. Um, it's good to hear we're, we're the 0.1%. Um, <laughs> uh, it's overestimating it, actually. <laughs> Um, and good to see so many former colleagues in Treasury and uh, other spending departments in, in, the, in the audience. Um, just, just a couple of thoughts on, um, uh, on, on what Anita and uh, Nick um, have said. I mean, I mean, the first thing is I very strongly agree with what Anita was saying about time periods and the period over which um, these things happen. I think there is a shared fiction really, between Treasury and spending departments that all of these spending reviews are for one, two or three years, when really, of course, they're setting the baseline for forever. I mean, the idea that you can introduce um, Sure Start or Child Care or whatever and then the next year unintroduce them uh, is clearly absurd. So it, 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 I, mean, I, th I think there is a problem of the process which is, um, you know, which is in, in everybody's interest to pretend that it's a short-run decision, whereas many of them are genuinely very long-run decisions and very hard, uh, very hard to unpick. Uh, I, I, and I also very much recognise this, this issue about 
the balloon um, that you can push in for a while, but it will come out eventually. You see that very clearly in what happens to public sector pay over time. It goes down, and then it has to catch up, and then it goes down, and then it has to catch up. And this is an incredibly inefficient way of doing things, but it looks like good spending control at the time. So I think there is a, uh, there, there's a really important issue here about what looks like a good spending control in the sense of meeting the numbers and what is efficient spending control over a period uh, which, would, which would give you a, 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 smoother, a smoother path. And you can see, I mean, it's obviously easy to see that in retrospect, but you can see some of that as you're doing it. I mean, it was known that by 2000, public sector pay was way below its long-term trend, and it had to come up again. And we're kind of getting there now, and it has to... Has to, come, uh, has to come up again, and you'd be better off recognising that a little bit earlier in the process, um, a, a little bit earlier in the process, I think. And, and the same is true in, in terms of some other things, and I think the IFG here has done some very good work um, in its uh, public spending tracker looking at the pressures that you can see uh, and you could have seen before uh, government responded in things like uh, prisons and social care uh, where you know the outcomes were really starting to go downhill very fast, and then you have to urgently put money in. So spending control is clearly about more than uh, meeting the numbers. It's also about understanding what's happening in the um, uh, out there and how much you need to put in. And you and you see that. And, and on, on the other side, when spending was rising, I mean, what was you know in a sense what we've described in the numbers as effective spending control through the 2000s, because broadly speaking. Uh, things were met. Uh, it's not very hard to find people in the public sector who will tell you that money was being um, splashed against the wall um, uh, in, the, in, in the 2000s because the money was there. So that wasn't effective spending control even if it met the numbers. So I think that difference between what's effective and what's actually meeting the numbers um, is, is, is one important thing. second thing I wanted to draw attention to, because Ben didn't, and, um, uh, and Nick actually kind of went in the other direction, which is this issue about obscurity um, and, and, and data. Actually, um, you know, it, it's staggeringly hard to do the things that Ben showed you uh, just now, because the data is incredibly hard uh, to, come, to come by, and actually has got harder over time. Um, uh, you know, we, we, there's less readily available um, digestible information in many ways, and certainly uh, information on spending which is consistent over time than you would ever imagine possible. And I don't think that that is a good thing for uh, public policy in any sense. Uh, and so, I mean, it, it, Ben and Rowena did a fantastic job bringing together a lot of this. Um, data over time. I do think that the Treasury, or possibly the OBR, possibly government departments, just need to invest much more in making this information um, better. Because in the end, I'm afraid I do have a slightly naive view of the world that, um, uh, that, that, uh, that obscurity doesn't, uh, doesn't, doesn't help you in the end, even if it helps you in the, even if it helps you in the short term. Um, third thing I wanted to say something about was um, this issue about stable inflation that uh, Nick referred to and stable macroeconomic environments. Now, there is quite a lot in the report, actually, particularly about the, the impact of uh, stable inflation, and it's clear that spending uh, responds to macroeconomic, uh, changing macroeconomic environments. And this is one, one of the many reasons why I have much sympathy for the Treasury at the moment as it's looking forward to the spending review over the next three or four years with frankly no idea what the macroeconomic environment's going to be um, three or four years uh, three or four years down the road. And um, you know, to, to the extent to which 
the lessons of all of this period will be relevant to the next period, I think is actually kind of a, itself an interesting question. And Julian sort of jokingly said, um, you know, well, you know, with uh, the possibility of nationalisation and so on, maybe we should be looking back to the 1970s. It may also be with the uh, uncertainty about the economic environment, the fact that we've had a period of uh, fairly strong um, spending control over this period may not tell us uh, how well it's going to go um, over, the, over the next period. But then I'm, I'm always saying miserable things, so you probably expect me uh, to say that. And then I suppose finally there is this issue about the relative role of Treasury and other departments and, and what Nick referred to as, as, as local government uh, control. You know, how good a thing is it uh, that we have this degree of central control of uh, public spending over what's happening in local government and indeed to some extent over what's happening in departments. Now I leave that o as, a, as an open question but there are clearly trade-offs here. The more that the centre controls exactly what local government can do, uh, the more that you've got control over these big fiscal things but the less you've got uh, a, degree of, um, a degree of local control that you might think um, is uh, that you might think is a good thing. Actually, one very last thing. Um, on, on NGF fle flexibility, um, this is a kind of very niche issue, but it did seem very much at the time that you know, to say to a department, you've got NGF flexibility to, to bring this money forward into the next year or the next year, but then what the Treasury did was top up spending in year all the way through. So the reason that um, spending levels... Met, met and exceeded uh, plans through the 2000s, despite the fact that departments were building up lots of NGF flexibility, is that the Treasury, as it were, banked that NGF flexibility and then topped up as well. So I think there was, uh, there was clearly some double counting there. And whilst I agree that there was a loss, there's inevitably a loss of trust when you take it away, um, I also think that the, you know, what, what you saw there was that this, sadly, was a, was a, was a process that couldn't actually work. Excellent. Thank you, Paul. Uh, right. Well, I wanted to throw this open to the audience. And just a history of this. Most people probably won't know this. Um, this project actually emerged from the interest of Sharon White, who's formerly second PAMSEC at the Treasury and now, of course, runs Ofcom. Um, and really, in Sharon's ongoing abiding interest in public policy of trying to make us better at what we do going forward. So we've had a little bit of the hints from the panel already about looking forward, what might we learn, what might this mean. Um, and if you just want to bear in mind, unusually um, for an IFG uh, discussion, um, this is a live and ongoing research project. So your questions, your comments, your directions to say we should, we should be looking at this uh, can influence the research that's going to go on over the next uh, year or two. So I'd encourage you to uh, not so much ro roll out your uh, standard question, but just reflect on what is really interesting to know about spending control given the uncertain future uh, we face. Uh, and with that, uh, I'll just take a few, I'll take questions in batches. And I will start with Richard Douglas, who's been name checked a few times. So if you could identify yourself properly so people who don't know who you are uh, can, uh, can figure it out. Uh, Richard Douglas, formerly Director of Finance, Department of Health for uh, 15 years. Um, now a job in a job in finance director, and I was probably the other one person spending pressure during the during the two thousands. It's just a couple of observations on, on, on what people said. And first of all, it's actually controlling spending is really really easy, provided you don't care about anything else whatsoever. So yeah, if you're not bothered about efficiency or outcomes, actually managing the control bit is really easy. And and I think that's one of the challenges this is, is getting the right balance between control and the other things you want to deliver. 
And that's the bits where maybe I sort of agree with Nick a bit and disagree with Paul. I think there are elements of things like NGO flexibility, trying to bring together the whole resource accounting and budgeting as part of a single framework that did encourage people to think at least about using their money more efficiently. Um, and the loss of trust bit was incredible when that was taken away, but it was also, it, it went back to encourage these people to splurge money at the end of the year, which was always a bad thing. Um, and interesting in health, actually, we, we kept it for years after the Treasury had stopped it, that we still sort of tried to act in a way that we still had it for the NHS, but we didn't get it the other way around. So I think the first thing is, is thinking about what else we're trying to do at the same time as control public spending and how do we deliver that second observation. It's this thing about the, the framework and how real and how rigid it is. I think it's really important, as Anita said, to actually keep the fiction that it's real, even if it isn't. Um, I would still argue in 15 years the finance director, I don't think, I, well, I don't believe I've reached the spending limit once. I think Treasury might argue I did, but that was on a technicality that I disagree with. Um, but, and I don't think during that period, actually, we ever went back and asked for a top-up during that. So it was, I don't think we reopened either during that. That could have been because we got lots of money. But it was incredibly important, actually, in trying to deal with the NHS and deal with your politicians that you had to believe this was real. And once you stop believing it was real, then things start to fall apart. And I think you've seen an element of that in the last in the last two or three years. So once the settlement's been reopened once, you've basically lost control. So you've got to have some way of how do you, how do you keep that fiction real? Okay. Great. Thanks, Richard. I think there's a question just here. Hi, Steve Schiffer, City University. Just want to focus a bit more, ask a bit more about the whole issue of efficiency, productivity, or outputs in this. Because clearly, uh, as a number of people are saying, that's you know, what we're aiming for is both control and, you know, better output. So I think the first question I have in that is, uh, do we see a pattern in which periods of expansion are, as colleague in Helsinki suggested, less, potentially less efficient? Because people said splashing money on the wall. And conversely, do we see periods where there's contraction, an increase in efficiency, for example, local government perhaps not completely stopping spending everything despite the treasury cutting them off. Um, the second thing is when we're measuring outputs or efficiency, do we also want to measure outputs in terms of the people getting the services and some measure of redistribution of outputs? I mean, who is gaining and who is losing from different directions? And I mean, treasury at one point did make some estimates in the budget, but I think this is another important area in terms of long-term explaining you know, how beneficial or not this was. Excellent, thank you. I think I'll come back to these two questions now, actually, because I think they're big enough uh, to take. So basically, Richard, um, sort of, it's easy to do if you don't care, um, and keep it real, I think, is the uh, point. And then this really important bit that we've touched on every time, you know, what and comes out of Richard's question, what is the efficiency, what are the outcomes, what are we also looking at beyond spending control here? Um, Nick, do you want to start on those two? Yeah, I mean, look, since Richard was broadly agreeing with me, I, I, I astonishingly broadly agree with him. And actually, the system, the basic system of control, that if you're an accounting officer for a department and you overspend, you're hauled before the Public Accounts Committee, that is 
very powerful. And the fact that it's remained in place, this is a Gladstonian reform for 150 odd years, suggests to me that it has a serious impact. As um, the IFS have pointed out, um, it's asymmetric. Um, you know, if you understand, um, you're less likely to be criticised, although, you know, for all I know, you should be. Um, but, um, so, uh, we've got a, you know, a control regime needs to have um, incentives. And there were various times, I mean, Gus O'Donnell, former Cabinet Secretary, head of the Civil Service, former Treasury Permanent Secretary, you know, occasionally things would get pretty... Um, the Treasury and the Cabinet Office would be in quite serious conversations where we felt that a department was failing uh, on um, expenditure control. And, um, you know, occasionally we would sort of, in the Treasury, contemplate withdrawing the accounting officer status from someone. We never actually did that formally, but occasionally people were moved on. I won't name, I won't name names. Um, Steve's point about efficiency, I mean, look, um, this is the age-old conundrum about public spending. You turn on the taps, you kind of know that um, the outputs you're going to be buying at the margin are almost certainly less than the average. Um, it is, you know, the only thing which makes the public sector take really difficult decisions is a very hard budget constraint. And if it doesn't have one then it's just easy just to give a bit of a pay increase here, um, you know, chuck some experimental money there. And in a sensible world, I do agree with Paul, in a sensible world, you try and smooth some of these things. But um, what you've got to remember, ultimately, is that, um, you know, taxing and spending is the most political thing, you know. You go back to the Peasants' Revolt, the creation of Parliament. And um, you get governments who are elected and they want to change the course of history um, one way or the other. And one of the slightly distressing things when there are changes in government is how much, how much of, you know, the, I can't remember the cliche about babies and bathwaters, but somehow we often lose some really sensible changes as part of, um, you know, political change. And it takes a long time to get those back. So, actually, I think we had... We were beginning to develop quite a good performance regime under New Labour. Um, it reflected real leadership from Tony Blair at the top. I can remember when the Tories got in in 2010, they just ripped up the whole thing and re replaced, actually, what was quite an emerging sort of... Um, an emerging framework which did relate... Um, outputs and outcomes to spending with just absurdly tedious and irrelevant so-called um, departmental business plans. And we lost something there. And uh, again, I agree with Richard, look, if you, just, if you just want to control spending, then that's easy. But actually, spending is there for a purpose. It's there to deliver outcomes. It's to make a difference. And the reason why it's done by the state and not the private sector is almost always we're operating in an area of market failure. Um, so that is, I mean, it's no coincidence that the state provides defence. Um, you know, uh, so um, it, is, it is difficult, but um, I think it's something which we need to come back to. You don't have to create an all-seeing, all-dancing PSA regime, 
but I think are just a rather more sophisticated uh, set of uh, relationships between money um, and outputs is where you've got to start. Thanks. I, I just have one very, very quick follow-up question. About that. You mentioned the conversations about failing permanent secretaries in other government departments. Do you know if you or any of your predecessors ever had difficult conversations with the cabinet secretary about whether the Treasury was doing well at its job? In <laughs> well, I think, um, I think there were regular conversations and actually quite important to challenge the cabinet office um, as well. And probably the Treasury is better placed to do that I can, than, than anybody. I do remember... At one point, um, in, the, in my final years as permanent secretary, there was a problem that the cabinet office had broken uh, the government's rules on pay, and a lot, someone had been employed at something which broke the treasury's, uh, the government's agreed position on pay. And I had a long um, d d set of discussions with the. Um, supported by the excellent Danny Alexander, who was the Chief Secretary, with the then Cabinet Secretary, about um, you know, whether, this, whether there was going to, we'd, we'd have to report in the Cabinet Office's accounts that they had breached um, this control. And the Cabinet Secretary didn't like this at all. Um, and uh, I think that what happened in the end was that he managed to keep the issue open over the general election of 2015. And then the first thing which happened after the election was that the then Cabinet Office Minister went round to see the now Tory um, Chief Secretary. And they would read it would be very embarrassing. Uh, if this very good. Was yes, yes. I think my question was actually going the other way. But anyway, that's another um, Anita. So, so, so two things really, I guess. Um, one of the challenges, obviously, with the spending, uh, the public spending, is that you're doing two things with it at, at, at once. One is trying to work out what you need to spend for the delivery of public services, which might be quite technocratic, matching resources to objectives. And you're also setting fiscal policy, yeah, and a fiscal stance, yeah. And so, and obviously, when the world is very stable, those, those, those two things are much easier. But how to protect, uh, if you like, that core of the public service job whilst obviously um, determining appropriate fiscal policy at, at any given time is very hard. One of the things that I think I, I, I would advocate in terms of... Um, trying to think about then this uh, longer-term efficiency issue, recognising that for both political reasons and for fiscal policy reasons, taps turn on and off yeah, in ways which, if you were just delivering a service, you wouldn't do, is to focus much more on understanding the way public sector labour markets operate and how to get them to be more uh, flexible and more efficient. Because where we typically struggle either to spend the money uh, well or struggle with what to do if we need to reduce the money is that uh, it is because most of that money, if it's not capital, obviously it actually goes on um, labour. Um, and we either don't have enough people because, yeah, or uh, we have a problem where we don't know what to do um, to, to uh, uh, um, manage a, a big downturn. And actually, <clears throat> of course, through 2008, and the response after that, most of uh, Europe 
experienced a similar issue and managed some of those labour market issues in, in, uh, and, and some of the public spending issues in, in different ways. And so, you know, one of the things, if you're thinking about your project, is that, and I, I would say is that actually, and for the Treasury, so we, actually Treasury's resources into uh, labour market, public sector labour markets is quite small, um, which I feel is an error. Um, but also, you know, in terms of things to look at, learning, the way that some other countries did that is quite interesting. Great. Thank you, Nita. Paul, any quick um, comments? Yeah, so very brief. Bringing the two questions together, in a sense, about, you know, spending, spending control itself is easy, isn't it? And um, what about efficiency? Um, just to illustrate, so soon after I started at the Treasury, um, so, so what, one of the things that people think about a lot is, so why doesn't the Treasury, why doesn't government spend to save? So you invest in small children now so they're not committing crimes later or whatever. Um, and I, you know, foolishly as a new Treasury official raised this, and it may have been with Nick, I can't remember, but, um, but, uh, but whoever it was I spoke to sort of, sort of sat me down and said, young man. Um, <laughs> what you need to understand is if we want to control the amount we spend on prisons, it's no good stopping people being criminals because the judges will fill the prisons up as much, as much as the prisons are there to fill them up with. The only way to actually control spending on prisons is just to give the Home Office less money to spend on prisons. And it doesn't matter what you spend on, uh, spend on prevention, we'll spend the same in the end. So that, 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 that I think, you know, represents the kind of treasury view of it's easy to, it's easy to kind of control money, uh, but, you know, uh, but, but you don't control money by reducing demand because the demand will always be there from, um, from, from the departments. Excellent. Thanks, Paul. Um, next set of questions. I think there's a couple just there. Um, just... Uh, Towards the back, the gentleman with the white beard, and then beside him, and I'll come to the front. Yeah, uh, Colin Talbot, Universities of Manchester and Cambridge. Um, I wanted to focus on the word the in your title, because uh, the conversation <coughs> we've been having so far could only really take place in London amongst OECD capitals. If you went to uh, Tokyo or Canberra or Ottawa or Washington, you'd have a very different sort of conversation because people wouldn't see government as just being the executive. Um, and we have a very executive-dominated system in the UK, uh, a very secretive one in terms of the way in which public spending decisions are made, and one that barely involves Parliament at all in making decisions about how public spending is actually decided uh, with very little real deliberation in Parliament at all. And even in systems which appear similar to ours, like that at the Australian federal level, actually they have much more deliberation in Parliament about what goes into public spending decisions than we have inside our Parliament. So I think you need to think about the fact that you're, you're saying how good is government about sticking to public spending plans, about how they formulate them, and thinking about the role of Parliament. The OBR's already been mentioned. Uh, a lot of uh, OECD countries that now are moving to towards having something like a parliamentary budget office uh, or the, the, uh, the, the Congressional Budget Office in the United States. And I completely agree with Nick as well that that what New Labour had managed to do in terms of beginning, and I don't think they ever got there properly, uh, to develop a way of looking at not just what you spend, but what you're spending it for, what you actually get for the money that's spent, 
uh, they'd made quite a lot of progress on that, which was then ripped up by the incoming coalition government. And again, that sort of thing is still going on in quite a lot of OECD countries. Excellent, thank you. And then just the gentleman aside. Um, James Richardson, Department of International Trade. Um, I want to pick up on a couple of uh, two points. Um, one, um, to what extent do you think it's, um, going back to that kind of prisons example, the kind of lack of join up across Whitehall and the spending uh, plans discussion, which is effectively a department versus treasury, and it's very like siloed and isolated between departments, um, impacts the government's ability to control trading plans. And, um, and I also want to pick up on what Paul Johnson's point about um, the availability of data. So I started my career in local government, and we effectively published our spending plans and outcomes against that on a monthly basis to cabinet. When I came to central government, I was staggered at the lack of data that was that was ever, that ever went to parliament. It only goes through the kind of estimate cycle, and that data is so obscure that even the people working on it can barely understand what it says. Okay, thank you for that. And then right at the front here. I'd like to ask a question about Goodhart's Law Chris, and public just, spending just numbers. Christopher, Christopher Hood. could you just identify yourself? Just. I'm Christopher Hood. I think it's working. It's on. It's on. My question is about Goodhart's Law and transparency. Goodhart's Law um, is the idea that as soon as numbers come to be administratively significant, and gain or loss can be achieved according to whether something is classified one way or another, the numbers will come to be gained and, in consequence, uh, their value will fall. And, of course, there are lots of categories that we heard about in this report today, capital versus current, um, and um, (coughs) Dell versus Amy, a whole lot of distinctions recently, defence and the issue of what kind of defence spending it is we have to do to get above 2% of GDP. These are everywhere. They're all over public spending um, uh, issues. Um, Now, what do you do about that? Um, Obviously, you need whistleblowers at various points in the system to try to uh, keep the Uh, the system honest, and they probably need to be international as well as national. Um, But I think there may also be a point at which you have to change the classifications in order to to plug up the the loopholes that that have been established. And that's where maybe you run into into a conflict with the idea of transparency, the idea that you want things to be predictable so that people like IFS researchers can have an easy job in working out a a, a consistent time series. But isn't there a conflict between these things? Isn't it a a trade-off? Excellent. Thank you. Uh, Three really interesting questions. I think gaming is my theme running through these. Christopher, very explicitly uh, on that. Actually, my experience of the siloed nature in the data is what happens when you let a load of economists trained in non-cooperative game theory organise a process. You get all sorts of very odd things going on. Um, and then Colin, um, slightly broadening it out into what are the wider institutions that we really should be taking into account here. Who wants to have a go at some of those? Paul, do you want to yeah, well, I mean, oh, there's no trade-off here. Making life easy for IFS researchers is clearly the priority. <laughs> um, but I mean, but, but this—I mean, I, I think this, is a, this issue around um, sort of targeting what you 
count or um, you know counting what you're targeting is is is, is, is has clearly been important in a range of um, things over time. So it was clearly. I mean, I think one of the things that was successful about the um, sort of post-1997 settlement as opposed to pre was that there was a long period when capital was genuinely counted somewhat different to current. And you could see on Ben's chart that the capital spending was slashed through the 90s in a, is a, in a quite remarkable way. But, of course, that didn't survive the crisis, and it, it then, uh, it get, then got cut again. Um, there's clearly been through um, PFIs... Um, spending in a way which got round the spending rules, which was you know, in, a lot of which in the end came back on book anyway. The way that Network Rail was set up, it eventually came back on book. Um, it, it, rather inefficient ways of um, uh, of managing spending to meet uh, to meet um, uh, to meet numbers and. I, uh, and I mean, you know, I don't know whether you know whether the student finance system got set up as it did entirely to meet um, uh, public finance uh, games, but it, it certainly done a pretty good job of meeting those. But again, the ONS is um, is, is 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 looking at reclassifying some of that. So I mean, one of the things I think you learn is that um, whilst uh, some of this, uh, you, you you can uh, organise things such as to um, have uh, the way that you're spending classified in a particular way, that often doesn't last um, enormously uh, long, even if it helps you get through a, a difficult um, moment. So you know, it's very difficult to say exactly what's being driven by what in there, but it'd be very surprising if some of the things I've just mentioned were not in part driven by what's measured and how it's, um, and how it's measured. Can you get round that? Well, you know... In a sense, I think you know the the response that I is, is not an unreasonable one that the Treasury could point to is that look, all of that data is out there in the public domain. I mean, you know, you can see this. Um, you know, when we're talking about problems of understanding things, I'm not talking about problems of understanding, you know, how much we're spending on, for example, student finance. Um, but then you've got a question as to whether you know whether the targets that that are there are actually terribly relevant to anything, or whether they're actually set um, uh, set. With all of that in, uh, with all of that in in mind, uh, I mean that that clearly you know that clearly does mean that the world needs to understand things in a slightly more nuanced way than the numbers are often um, put out there. And since the world probably doesn't even understand the numbers that are put out there, the chance that uh, they understand the nuanced numbers I think is rather limited. Okay, thank you, uh, Anita. Do you want to... So <clears throat> just just two things. So, so the point about international examples and. I'm... I do think it would be very good to have a, a look internationally. I was at OECD meeting, I think it was last year, talking about spending reviews. And it was, it was fascinating to me in that, you know, you suddenly realise your world is very narrow, to see that other countries really do approach this so fundamentally differently. And in particular, what, thinking a lot more about what our process is good at, which is, I think, probably that, collect, that collective decision at the, at the margin with collective cabinet kind of responsibility uh, around that and the overall control of a, of a budget. What the spending review process uh, that we have at the moment, which is a very short, very political uh, uh, process, very focused on the incremental spend, not on the core spend, I think is very bad at, is actually at really thinking through how you improve value for money. And interestingly, the Netherlands, I think it was, used the term spending review not to talk about the sort of process of resource allocation at the margin that we go through, but that they have a kind of rolling programme of periodically picking up an area of expenditure, 
It might not even be bounded by a departmental, I mean, they didn't even see it necessarily as a departmental focus. And looking at what are we trying to achieve that expenditure, how is it organised, how are the inputs... And obviously that then feeds through into whichever debates it might be, legislative change, structural solutions or, or expenditure decisions. But it happens in a very different way. And, 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 and I think we could uh, benefit from thinking more broadly about that. I think the point about gaming is, is really important because I can't think of a, a framework that doesn't have that problem. And I think, therefore, that actually um, the... Um, the emphasis through the finance, through the accounting officer <coughs> regime, and through the finance profession and the analytical professions, and strengthening them, really important. You know, I remain so passionate about an, uh, an apolitical uh, civil service and making sure that we hold on to, strengthen, and support the roles of those uh, functions. Um, within government is really important. We've talked quite a bit about the OBR. The other one I really want to mention, I think, is the National Statistician Framework. And I think in other areas, you know, having people who are officially tasked, and, and you hope that by having them, you have to use them very uh, rarely, but, but having that so that where people are stretching um, what should be done to the limit and beyond... There is adjudication uh, of that is, I think, really, really important because I think it is unavoidable. I, I can't imagine a regime that won't have opportunities to game. Thank you, Anita. Nick, um, you were, of course, Prime Sec for a lot of institutional changes. Such as the, I think the OBR came into being under your watch. You also oversaw a review into the finance profession, how to strengthen it, picking up on what yeah. Anita sort of said. Um, anything you can think of um, or you would look at now and think, well, actually, we should be doing something um, to strengthen this system and make sure that gaming that may be inevitable but is less pervasive or destructive um, inside our system of expenditure control? Well, uh, OBR, you know, brilliant institution. Only, only pity was that it didn't wasn't introduced earlier. Um, I know Gus was a supporter from 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 way back. Um, it's. I mean, the interesting thing is that government now does, in various different places, produce a lot of really useful things. Um, you know, the whole of government accounts, long-term fiscal projections by by the OBR, um, fiscal risks, which I think we're about to have a report in the. Tomorrow, mm-hmm. you better read it because mm-hmm. because believe me, um, all those things require huge resources to produce, and actually they're really quality documents. Mm-hmm. But picking up with um, Professor Talbot's point, um, I was always staggered by how little interest there was in any of these things. Mm-hmm. You know, long-term fiscal projections, which you can see it coming down the railway track. You know, the problems of demography, the problems with the triple lock, um, and um, yet this merits about one column in the FT. And actually, coming back to the time inconsistency, you know, we may all be interested in this in this room. Everybody else seems to... The British people are addicted to consumption. They elect politicians who are addicted to consumption. And then we're surprised that there's no investment. Um, and we can all sort of try and come up with cleverer ways of, of doing these things. But, but sorry, to come back to your question, 
And actually, it, it, it is picking up on, um, on Colin Talbot's point. The, the, the really depressing thing is Parliament. Um, I, I, um, I was in charge of public spending and permanent secretary, if I put those two things together, for 15 years. During those 15 years, did the Treasury Committee ever do a serious inquiry into public expenditure, allocation and control? No. It was far too busy grandstanding on banking or... <laughs> Um, wanting to sort of, um, you know, I, I don't know what the Treasury Committee does, but um, <laughs> but but and, 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 and they would no doubt argue, well, it's all to do with the PAC, but the PAC is not there for macro spending issues; it's there mm. for micro ones, and they would no doubt argue they are all hopelessly under-resourced, but. Um, in the end, it must be in Parliament's control to resource select committees, because select committees were set up to actually look at how departments spent money. They don't. And so um, I would like to see a stronger legislature. Um, I know it's easy for me to say that now, that I'm no longer working for the executive. When I was at the, exec when I was at the executive, um, actually it suited me quite well that I didn't have to waste my time going down to Parliament too often. But I think this is an important point. And... Um, uh, the amount of challenge on spending from anybody. I mean, it's great the IFG, IFS, IFG do, do a bit of this, but even um, the IFS ultimately is more interested in sort of macro stuff and tax. Um, you know, it, it, it doesn't have the capacity to sort of really get into serious um, public spending issues. So, um, look, um, I think... I think that's all. That's, awesome. that's great, Nick. I want, I want to take one last round of questions, though. I, I think I might have a couple of oh, well, not hands have suddenly appeared. So, can people keep these questions really short? And I'm going to take you in the order that I saw the hands. So, at the back, right at the back there. I'm just going to complete Nick's plug for the fiscal risks report, um, which I think is an attempt to address some of the issues that people have raised here. So I'm Richard Hughes, I'm Director of Fiscal Policy in the Treasury. Um, and it is an attempt to address some of the issues that have been raised here around uh, gaming of the system and getting around rules. Um, because I think, as, as Anita said, a lot of the real pressures in the UK public spending framework are the things which are looming on the horizon, even outside the one looked at here, sort of 5, 10, 20 years ahead. And it is an attempt to actually look at those and, and say what the government is doing to get a grip on those longer-term pressures. Excellent. So look more, out for that more exciting reading for the audience. Uh, the gentleman just on the end there. Yep. Pass that through. Hello, I'm John Fender from the University of Birmingham. You asked the question, how well does the government stick to its public spending plans? You can ask a similar question about any organisation that spends money. You can ask that question about corporations. You can ask that question about charities. You can ask that question about universities. So this suggests a number of questions. Are there... Is there an essential difference between government and non-government organisations about how they manage their spending? Have there been studies of non-government um, organisations? Have there been studies of corporations and how they manage their spending? Are there any lessons we can draw from such studies? Um, and are there any lessons uh, these organisations can um, learn from government? So right. I'd appreciate thoughts on, on that issue. Thank, thank you very much. Um, then coming to Emily and then I'll come to Gus. Uh, so just... Emily, just forward here. Hello, um, I'm Emily Andrews. Um, I work here on the performance tracker, which um, 
Paul uh, very nicely referred to, where we attempt to look at the input and output data which goes with this spending data to get an answer to the sufficiency question. In your last round of answers, I would be interested if you could gesture towards what you think is going to happen in the next spending review. Oh, very good. Uh, Gus. The point I'd like to make is... Well, you need to identify the, sorry, Gus Sodon, former Treasury and Cabinet Office. Um, so <clears throat> I think that point about outcomes, because we've gone through various kinds of... Uh, remember we had the letters. Tony Blair gave out a letter with the spending reviews. We've had PSAs, had all sorts of things. I think unless we start getting the outcome side of this in, it just, I mean, it's all fairly hopeless. Uh, because we can control spending, as Nick says and Richard says, you, they're just numbers and everyone sticks to them. Which gets me to the second point, which people have raised about the PAC. I do think they are responsible for the fact that they never haul anybody up and say, so why did you underspend so much? And I do agree strongly with Nick that we screwed up time consistency by the ERG thing, uh, EYF thing, sorry, um, God, ERG, where did that come from? Um, uh, <laughs> Too many scars there. Too many, yeah. but, I, but I strongly think we, we didn't do the right thing on the time consistency uh, there, and, and we do need to get the PAC thinking about these things more generally and looking at the outcomes as well. Um, final point for me, I did try to get this to be longer when the, the coalition came in, the five-year, you know, the part of the deal was the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act, five years. This was the time to kind of prove that you had a long-term plan, a five-year thing. I, I'm not sure if it was Nick that stopped us. Uh, but, <laughs> but anyway, in the end, it, it didn't happen. And, and a, a coalition who did think at the start about outcomes in the end, moved away and did some things which actually were very counterproductive. All right, excellent. And then just in front. I'm James Richardson, one-time spending controller and the person who abolished EYF, but I'm not going <laughs> <laughs> to talk about that because if this is the 0.1%, I think, you know, it's the 0.01%, you probably find EYF interesting. We did replace it, which people seem to have forgotten. Um, I wanted to ask about the kind of sub-level of spending plans. You've talked about the spending aggregates, which is really a kind of fiscal policy issue, and it's interesting when you're close to the wire on fiscal policy and less interesting otherwise. But as lots of people have said, what you spend the money on is really more important than the total. And actually, the UK is very unusual in basically handing departments vast block grants and then saying, that's it. If you went to Australia or most other countries that people have mentioned in this, the budgets would be set at a much more disaggregated level and, you know, a department would have yes. dozens of different budget lines that it would have to meet. Should the Treasury start moving more towards that and set more disaggregated budget lines or is it better to give, you know, Richard or whoever uh, £100 billion and tell him to get on with it? Great, thank you. Um, I've run overloaded the panel. I'm now also going to tell them that they've got about 30 to 40 seconds to respond <laughs> to whichever, whichever points they feel are most relevant, certainly not all of them. Um, and, uh, yeah, we need to run quickly okay. through. Um, everybody, um, everybody, all organisations have budgets. Totally get that. And about once every five years, sometimes even once every two years, some person from the private sector comes in and does a review to tell us how to do this better. And um, I think it's called democracy, which gets in the way, um, that somehow it doesn't, it doesn't translate. Um, 
I've, I feel guilty about the man who, earlier who asked about um, joined up government and cross departmental mm. budgets. Really important. And I think, just as Gus makes the point that we've sort of slightly gone backwards on outputs, I think we've gone backwards on um, cross departmental accountability. And I think it's something we should come back to. And you can all answer the other points. Yeah. Um, um, I promise to read fiscal risks. I am an avid consumer of, uh, <laughs> of, of fiscal zero, risks, actually, because uh, on, on long-term issues. And I, I think you. Know, I mean, sort of one of the things we haven't talked about here, actually, is alongside you know, one of the things that's making all of this quite difficult at, at the moment is almost certainly, you know, we've got policy ambition on spending, which is unaligned with tax policy, um, and we're struggling to get our our, our, our heads around that in a low-growth economy, you know, <clears throat> uh, add, add, add in all the uh, uncertainty. So, you know, um, and no doubt, you know, that will take several years to play itself out to come to resolution because no one wants to decide any of that for completely understandable reasons. <laughs> I think James's point is really interesting. And I think alongside... I think one of the things that I feel now frustrated about uh, spending reviews is uh, uh, coming back to them and, and reflecting on <clears throat> the wantless uh, money and stuff is that actually there's kind of no... I'm, I'm nervous of the Treasury dictating the detail of spending. I, I, you know, we worked on welfare to work together and we micromanaged the spending area to the most outrageous degree. And notwithstanding the fact that we're both brilliant, obviously, um, I'm not entirely sure that that is the way to run a country. And we weren't very good at controlling ourselves, you better than me. But, you know, actually, um, it's not... It doesn't seem to me to be the, the quite, quite the right way to control things. But actually, like with the wellness money, we gave a huge amount of money with an ambition... And, and actually, the follow-through then to the commitment, what are we actually going to do with the money? Where's the transparency of the plan to how to spend it? Where the money will go? Where's the ability then to track the accountability back from did the money get spent on what you promised? That is all very inconsistent, very ad hoc, very opaque as well. So I think I would fix that rather than try and run everything from the Treasury fund, though it was for a while. Excellent. Thank you very much for that. I haven't got time for my anecdote from the DWP side. We had slightly different view. Um, Paul, do you want to finish up final words? Yeah, I mean, I agree with that uh, from Anita. I think it's very much be a you know, fifth best outcome if you thought the best thing you could do was to control a micro level from the Treasury. If you think that's true, you must think there's something really seriously wrong with the spending departments and the way that they, they do things. Now, maybe there is. Um, I, I generally take no, no view about that, but, 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 but if, if that's the issue, then you should really surely be fixing that before you decide that the answer is to give it all to you know, six people in a, a Treasury spending team to determine exactly how it should be spent. Um, there was a question which I can't, you know, I can't help myself answering um, only, well, not answering, actually, about what, what might happen in the next um, spending review, uh, to which the answer is, well, you know, God, who'd, who'd be Chancellor today? Because, um, you know, um, Nick might not have had to have worried too much about Parliament, but, uh, but this, um, <laughs> this Chancellor certainly, uh, certainly has to worry quite a lot about uh, Parliament and, uh, and, and has, you know, has to, has to square a, a circle, which is, you know, uh, someone said earlier that, you know, once you reopen one bit of spending, then you, you, you lose the, the, the power of the fiction. Well, I think they're, they're close to losing the power of the fiction that they've... Uh, that they've got control on the spending. There's no hope of getting any tax rises through Parliament and they're constrained by a manifesto commitment to get to budget balance. So one of those is going to have to go. 
Excellent. On that note about the joys of democracy, uh, can I uh, suggest anyone got any further thoughts and comments and apologies if I didn't get to you. Paul, Ben and Christopher will no doubt be really keen on your thoughts and reflections on this. There is a lot more work coming out of this project. I know I think there's an international comparisons uh, element of it, which should hopefully uh, provide some light. And um, with that, can you join me in thanking the panel and speakers? <laughs> <laughs>